out to the Philippines, but actually we're coming to you uh, now from Vietnam. We've moved around a bit over those years. And I just wanted to show you Vietnam on the map so you have a clear picture of where it is. It's that long red country underneath China and across the sea from the Philippines where we started out. It's, I don't know if it looks big on the map there or not, so the next slide will show you Vietnam against uh, the UK. It's about one and a half times the size of the UK and about one and a half times the population of the UK. There are 96 million people and often people are surprised at that. They think it's a much smaller country in terms of people. But what surprises people as well is these 96 million people have 45 million motorbikes or scooters. This is the country where motorbikes rule. There are four or five million four-wheeled vehicles, but 45 million scooters. Uh, if, if you like the TV show Top Gear, and I know it's the kind of show that some people love and some people hate, the episode about the Vietnam is the one with no cars in it. And this is a car show because it is about motorbikes. We have one motorbike for every three people. And of course, you can share that. Uh, in fact, you can get your whole family on the motorbike. Um, one, and if you look at that carefully, you can even get child seats and stick them on your motorbike. I don't think that's a baby at the front. I think that is a little doll. Um, and one of the fun things to do is to have people come Vietnam and say, cross the road. And crossing the road is one of the day's adventures. And the rule is, just keep going and the traffic will go around you. At least the motorbikes will go around you. If you see a big bus, get out of the way. Or a lorry, get out of the way. Uh, and then one of the things that we make new members of our, our team do is actually get a license. Some people think that's optional in a place like Vietnam. We think it's quite important. But to do that, you have to take the Vietnam motorbike test. Uh, you can see that in its full glory on the Top Gear episode. But we have all done this, and that's some girls practicing for their motorbike test where you do this little figure of eight and a slalom and go over a series of bumps and then show that you can still go in a straight line. It's rather different than the, the UK motorbike test. But having passed the test, you can take anything and everything on your motorbike in Vietnam. <laughs> there is a motorbike under there. I just want to reassure you of that. Uh, and then on the next slide, uh, you know, wh why do you need to deflate that before taking you home? That's <laughs> yeah, just a lot of hassle. And then if you buy some of these when you go to Tesco's, then do you, do you even know what those are? But you can take them home on your motorbike. And if you get a delivery, if you order something, well, then your refrigerator can also come on the motorbike. Now, now don't ask the question, what happens when he gets to his destination and gets off the motorbike because his weight is critical. That's going to be his problem. But I want to show you all these pictures this evening because I want you to imagine for a moment that you are in Vietnam and you're on a motorbike. Now, some of you may think that's an exciting thing to do. Some of you may feel a bit daunted by that, but everybody on our team, even Anne-Marie at age 21 plus, uh, had to learn to ride a motorbike. Um, I want you to imagine you're on a motorbike in Vietnam, you're in the crowd on the next slide here, 
you're one of those people and you're with a friend and they have a motorbike and they say to you, follow me. And just one other rule, you don't have a mobile phone. Because, you know, that's our recourse these days, isn't it? If I get lost, I have a mobile phone, I'll call you. You don't have a mobile phone. You're just going to follow your friend on their scooter and you're on your scooter in the traffic as they dodge and weave to a destination somewhere in Hanoi. And you don't know where it is. And you dare not lose them. You're going to follow very carefully. You're going to have your eyes fixed on them. You're going to be their devoted follower for the next 30 or 40 minutes to make sure you get to their destination. Well, to believe in Jesus is to become a follower. This is the essence of being a disciple. Uh, to be a disciple is to become a follower of Jesus. And if we think about what we call ourselves, sometimes we call ourselves Christians, and sometimes we call ourselves disciples. And both words are good, but they have got a different kind of sense. A Christian is more of a category. You, you, you become a Christian, and then you stay a Christian, and if you don't do anything, you're still a Christian. At least you think you are. But a discipler is a follower. And if you stop following, you cease to be a follower. You cease to be a disciple. Christian is actually a term that others gave the early Christians. The title they chose for themselves was followers of the way. And the way, of course, was Jesus. A Christian could be passive, but a disciple always has to be active or they're no longer following. A Christian could be a decision that you made once, but to be a disciple is something that you have to renew and do again each day as we keep on following. We keep on following Jesus. It is dynamic. It is continuous. And what I want to look at this evening is the story of three men who wanted to follow Jesus or Jesus told them to follow him and how they responded and how Jesus responded to them. And this is the story of the three men. And I think it's important enough to have this in our minds that I know we've had it read to us and read to us very well, but I will just read it again so that this story of these three men is clear in our heads. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes and dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Those are the three short vignettes, and these are the three people we're going to be thinking about this evening. The first man I think of as the enthusiast. He's the guy who rushes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you anywhere. Now, I don't know about you, but I naturally love the enthusiast. 
when you throw out a new idea and the person who says, that's it, let's go do it, can we do it tomorrow? Well, why not, let's do it today. And, and that's, that's so encouraging. And, and the Lord always gives you a mix of people and there's some enthusiasts and there's some other people who are saying, well, actually, I see a lot of problems. And actually, you learn over time that the people who see all the problems, they're also very helpful and you need to listen to them as well. But the enthusiast, that's always a great place to start. And this is the guy who, I will go anywhere, do anything. But I've learned also that there's a big difference between enthusiasm and commitment. The enthusiast says, I feel good about this, let's do it. Commitment counts the cost and says whatever it takes, whether or not I continue to feel good about it, I will do it. And that's the difference. Jesus is not looking just for enthusiasts. Enthusiasm is good. Pessimists are good. What's important actually is commitment. People who will say, I will do this. And I will do this on the days when I leap out of bed with enthusiasm and the days when I have to push myself out of bed and do what I have committed to. And most of the things that are needed in life take commitment. And certainly things uh, on the mission field take commitment. One of the things that we've found takes commitment is language study. Uh, when Anne-Marie and I went to the Philippines, we were 25, and we learned Tagalog or Filipino, the language we speak there. Uh, it's a language with one of the worst and most complicated grammars in the world, but we thought it was great fun to learn. We enjoyed that experience. Uh, tangling with the grammar, we got there in the end and became quite good at it. And then we committed to study Vietnamese. Uh, we were no longer 25, we were 25 in a few more years. Uh, we'd also taken other responsibilities as field director and uh, running our field and caring for our field members, but still trying to learn a different language with very different challenges. Vietnamese has very little grammar but it's almost impossible to pronounce, or at least to pronounce in a way that people understand you. So that even after several months in Vietnam, I would jump into a taxi and say, take me to Duong Quang Quoc Viet, which is a big road in the middle of Hanoi, and a taxi driver would go, where? And I go, Duong Quang Quoc Viet. And he'd go, where? And after I've said it four, five, six times, he'll go, ah, Duong Quang Quoc Viet. Right, you heard the difference, I couldn't hear the difference. I would get the taxi driver to repeat it several times and try and learn to say it how he said it. But it was challenging. And I remember particularly in the first few months, we would have a splitting headache by the end of three or four hours of trying to learn Vietnamese. Uh, on, this, on the slide there, you've got the Vietnamese tones, because it has six tones, which were a challenge to those of us who, who just speak English or just speak Tagalog. Uh, which have no tones. We praise the Lord because it has an alphabet. Uh, they used to use Chinese characters, and of course that is a whole other dimension that you have to learn. But fortunately, about 100 years, they changed to this alphabet. And I don't know if that looks beautiful to you, but it does to us. Because <laughs> it is a phonetic alphabet. So it's not as bad as English, because English, of course, is terrible, because we have three different ways to write every sound. Um, but we have persevered and made some progress 
younger members of our team who persevered and are fluent and effective and ministering in Vietnamese. But if you're called overseas, if you're called to a place with another language, speaking the language of the people makes such a difference in relationships. But it takes a commitment to get there. When we first arrived in Vietnam, I met a lot of foreigners who said, I, I tried to learn Vietnamese, but I didn't get anywhere. And I concluded, you cannot learn Vietnamese on a Saturday morning. By which I don't mean that there's a government rule that you can't learn Vietnamese on a Saturday morning. But if all you've got is a Saturday morning, you will never get there. You'll never make significant progress. Something else I think is hard and which we often underestimate is the ministry of prayer that takes commitment. I saw something recently which was advertising, just pray for five seconds a day, make prayer easy. I, I understand the sentiment of what was behind that, but I think really praying is hard work. And most of us respond to hard work by looking for something else to do that is easy work. And yet, if we're really going to be part of what God is doing in prayer, it will take hard work. It will take applying ourselves to the task. And, and one of the, the general directors of OMF, our most famous general director, is Hudson Taylor. Uh, but the man who followed him, who's not so well known, is a guy called D.E. Host. He felt he needed to spend two hours at the beginning of each day praying. But he found that very difficult. And one of his solutions was to get somebody else to come pray with him because that focused him on the task. And sometimes a junior missionary would turn up at headquarters and be told, uh, you're assigned to go pray with the general director this morning for two hours. And this is in a day when general directors are up there and junior missionaries are, are down there. But it helped him stay focused and do what God had asked him to do. Because we're called to commitment. We're called to sacrifice. This, this central chapter of Luke's gospel is so critical because a lot of key things happen from Luke chapter 1 to Luke chapter 8. The disciples have been learning about who Jesus is by seeing him in action and listening to him teach. And then in chapter 9, they're tested and Jesus says to them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter has got it. And Peter says, you, you are the son of the living God. And then he begins to teach them about what he came to do. The son of God must suffer many things, be killed and raised to life. And to teach them what it means to be his followers. Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross daily and follow me. And it's in the context of this teaching that we get these three men and their desire to follow Jesus or their des Jesus' desire that they follow him. And to this man, in his enthusiasm, Jesus turns to him and says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And it seems like he's turning back to him and saying, you know, great enthusiasm, but are you prepared for the issue of security? Because if you follow me, you're going to forsake a lot of what people put store in as earthly security. And your security is going to be in me, not in things, 
not in homes, not in houses, which we value enormously in the UK, but in me. One of our missionaries had served for many years in China, and after he'd become particularly effective at uh, reaching Muslims in China, the Chinese government decided to ask him to leave. And I was looking to set up a conversation with him on Skype, and when I went on to Skype to look for him, I noticed his Skype status. Life cannot be made secure. Life cannot be made secure. Jesus is our security, not what we can do. Well, that's the first man, the enthusiast. The second man, the second man I think of as the excuse maker. Jesus says to him, follow me, and his response is first, let me do something else. Now, when you ask somebody to do something and they say, well, hang on, first I've got to do something else. Sometimes that's a very genuine reason why they can't do what you would like them to do. Sometimes it's a reason that they're grasping at to avoid doing what you would like them to do. And sometimes it's a bit like that between us and the Lord. God is saying to us, I want you to do X. I don't know what X is for you. I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you about. And sometimes we can't immediately do it for very good reasons. Sometimes we're making up reasons why we can't do it. Sometimes if you come and explain your reasons to me, they might sound very convincing to me. If you explain them to the pastor, he may be a bit harder to convince because he knows you a bit better. But the Lord knows what's going on in your hearts. The Lord knows what is a real reason and what is simply an excuse. So what about this guy's excuse? He replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, at first sight, that's a pretty heavy excuse. Don't you think? You know, that does sound like a priority task. And the first impression that most of us get, I think, when we read this passage, is his father has just died, and he's saying, hang on, I've got a funeral to arrange, I've got to go and bury my father, and then I can come back and follow you. That might be the scenario that comes to our minds. Actually, in, in Palestine at that time, it's a very unlikely scenario. Burial was very near immediate after somebody died. And if your father has just died, you are not wandering the streets talking to visiting evangelists. You are heading home just as fast as you can possibly can to be part of that very immediate funeral. And it's very unlikely, actually, that we're talking about somebody whose father has just died and Jesus saying, you can't even go to the funeral. What's much more likely is that his father is alive and well, but he wants to wait until his father has died. Now, why does he want to wait? Maybe it is because he knows his father would disapprove. Maybe knowing his father would disapprove, it means he will get his inheritance before he suffers his father's uh, disapproval. Uh, we don't know all the details or all the possibilities. But we know he wants to delay. And I was in a group that was talking about this passage of people working in Vietnam. And one of the 
people was working particularly among the Hmong people who live up in the northwest corner of Vietnam. And they, they have quite a remarkable story. We have 54 different minorities in Vietnam, and they are pretty much at the bottom of the pile. Everybody looks down on the Hmong. And they made a bad choice during the Vietnam-American War, and they sided with the CIA, who were running a secret war up in the north. And so when the Vietnamese, the communists, won the war, they were in a very bad position. But God used that. Many of them left the country, ended up in the States. Some became Christian, and Christian radio began to broadcast back into Vietnam. And many of them have believed. And many of our Christians in Vietnam belong to these minority groups. And talking to this other Christian worker who was working among them, he said that as he, he sought to be part of taking the gospel to the, the Hmong people who had not yet believed, often he got this response, I'll follow Jesus after my parents have died. Because they knew they were going to get opposition from parents. It's a common problem in Vietnam. And he said often he would share and they would say, yeah, I would love to follow Jesus, but I'm going to wait until my parents have died. But he said, you know, you wait and you wait and the parents die and they don't follow Jesus. I quizzed somebody else who works particularly amongst students in Hanoi, whether they had experienced this. And they said, well, not that exactly, but what I sometimes get from students is, I will follow Jesus, but after I have finished my studies, because my parents are funding my studies, and I don't want to offend my parents, and so let me wait until I'm independent, and then I will follow my Jesus. I will follow Jesus. But it's a delaying tactic, this first let me go and bury my father. Actually, the answer is not now, it's not convenient. And we never know when somebody will die. We just celebrated, or the queen celebrated her 92nd birthday. She just keeps going and going and going, and some people do. And some people, God takes them much younger. But there's no such thing as real discipleship, which is just convenient discipleship. And if our answer to Jesus is, let me first, it doesn't really matter what the other thing is. But if something else is first, then Jesus isn't first. And Jesus takes priority over whatever else we would put first. That includes family. That includes career. That includes security. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care for our families, but part of following him is entrusting that to him. And often that's more difficult than entrusting ourselves to him, whether it's parents or children or other key relatives, to entrust them to him, not just ourselves to him. But he asks us to do that. The time for obedience is now, not later. Because the task that Jesus has given us is urgent. Jesus says to this man, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Because the preaching of the good news of Jesus is urgent. It is a matter of life or death. 
We're not just ministers of a slightly better covenant with an offer to make a modest improvement in people's condition or peace of mind. We are ministers of the covenant of the Spirit that alone gives life. There is nothing else. And the opportunity is limited. The opportunity for people to hear and respond to Jesus is limited. Like the rich man in Luke chapter 12, they are mortal and the end may come. Opportunities to share the good news of Jesus are limited. We're told we have a time now when the gospel is to be preached to all nations. And then the end will come. There will be an end. Jesus will return. And we are under orders. It's not just a good idea, a suggestion if we have some free time. It's an instruction to be followed. Because Jesus is coming back. And there are so many situations I could talk about where, where we see that need. Uh, one place I thought I would mention was Indonesia. Indonesia is a country with more Muslims than any other country in the world. Often we think Muslim if you're Middle East. Actually, we've got hundreds of millions of Muslims in East Asia. And in Indonesia, we have hundreds, almost 200 different people groups. And each of them needs a team of people who will go and live among them, will learn their cultures, learn their language, figure out how to get alongside them, and sensitively share Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes referring to him as Isa al-Masih, using the terms that they're familiar. We already heard about how, how Muslims know Jesus is a prophet. Sometimes it's best to start with talking about Jesus the prophet in order to introduce Jesus the Lord. And we still have an opportunity in Indonesia. Islam is getting stronger there, uh, but it's still not that difficult to get into that country and to share with those different peoples. We live in Hanoi which is the capital city of Vietnam, up there in the north, about 7 million people. 7 million people makes it a little bigger than Scotland in terms of population. When we first went there, I think there was about three visible churches in Vietnam, in, in Hanoi. There's now perhaps six or seven visible churches and a lot of other small churches, but there are at the very most about 5,000 Vietnamese Christians in Hanoi, less than 0.1%. And it's hard to find a church. I was in Germany, and I met this uh, Vietnamese PhD student who'd gone to Germany to study. He'd been reached by an English lady in her 70s who was living in Germany. He had become a Christian, and then he'd gone back to visit Hanoi. And after two weeks back in his, his own city, he came back and he said, there are no evangelical churches in Hanoi. And we were pleased to inform him that there are, they're just difficult to find. There is only one church that looks like a church. That's the one in the photograph there. Now, we know, of course, that for a church to look like a church is not that important. Although it's quite nice to be in a church that looks like a church, isn't it? <laughs> and it's quite helpful because people wander in the door in a way that they don't wander in the door when you're hidden down the back streets. And although this church looks like a church, it is still rather in the back streets. And we helped him find a church. But there are so few churches in this city of seven million for people to find. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim 
the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us to obedience now, not at our convenience. He's either Lord of all or not at all. That's the second man, the excuse maker. The third man I think of as the procrastinator. Now, I don't know if there's anybody here who's guilty of procrastination. We all know the motto of the procrastinator, never do today what you can put off till tomorrow. I don't know if you're like that. Uh, but, but this is what we find here. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first. First, there is something else. The following you can wait. Uh, and maybe they're a procrastinator or maybe they're a ditherer. And they can't quite decide and they find it difficult to solidly make a commitment. And I've, I've got a couple of pictures here of dithering people. The lady can't quite decide which shirt to wear. Uh, the man can't quite decide which pair of blue jeans to wear. Uh, and I have a friend, and he, he suffers from chronic indecision. That's really the only way to describe him. I'm not sure if it's a medical condition, but it is really frustrating. He was traveling with a friend of mine, speaking at meetings in South America, and my other friend said, we would go to a restaurant, and they would bring us the menus, and I would look at the menu, and I'd choose my meal, and my friend is going, oh, I'll have the, no, no, I'll have, no, I, I think I'll, and he said, I, I learned after a while, I would, I would order, and I would wait, and my order would come, and my friend over here is still going, um, maybe I will have, no, up. Uh, and he would sit there for 20 or 30 minutes trying to decide what to choose off a menu, while my other friend had almost eaten his meal before he could decide. Maybe you're not like that, but it is so easy to be like that. Uh, sometimes we are faced with something, and it just is, is so much. And I love this little cartoon says, the task I must undertake is towering over me like a great big monolith. Next. It is too big to contemplate, so I think I will have a little look at the internet. Uh, anybody? No, I wouldn't ask if anybody's guilty of that. Uh, you just have to check Facebook or Twitter or something like that before you can get on with what you're supposed to do. Well, this man says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Don't look back when you're plowing. Now, what is the problem with looking back when you're plowing? Well, if you're a British farmer... A British farmer plows like this. He drags the plow behind the tractor and he actually spends all his time looking back. If he doesn't look back, and I guess he glances forward as well, uh, it's not going to work well for him. But if you're a Vietnamese farmer, you plow like this. You have the water buffalo in front of you pulling the plow and you look ahead. And if you start looking back, you're stirring the plow, and the plow is going to go all over the place. And of course, the Vietnamese farmer is much more like the farmer in Jesus' time. And the photographs in the next slide are of Jesus' time or contemporary times in the same part of the world. The farmer is behind the plow, and he needs 
to look forward. Now, what are we to make of this story? Jesus is talking to a Jewish man who from birth has been taught the Old Testament. And I think he's throwing four key elements to him and allowing him to put it together. There are four key elements in this story. Somebody is called to follow. Somebody wants to say goodbye to their family. Somebody is plowing, and there is no turning back. Now, those of you who have been taught the Old Testament, what story in the Old Testament has these four elements? You didn't know you were getting a quiz tonight, did you? <laughs> Elisha, thank you. Yes, the calling of Elisha to follow Elijah. And let me read that to you from 1 Kings chapter 19. So Elijah, the prophet, went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. Uh, Elisha was plowing, got the plowing, with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, which seems like a really odd thing to us, but Elisha clearly understood this as a call to follow Elijah. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. You see the parallels with, with, with Jesus' response to this man? He said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? He almost seems to be, you know, distancing himself from what he's asked of Elisha. So Elijah left him and went back to say goodbye to his family. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plying equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. So when this man said, I've got to say goodbye to my family, did Jesus say no? I don't think so. I think by calling to mind this story, he said to the man, yes, say goodbye. Think as somebody schooled in the Old Testament of the, course of the calling of Elisha by Elijah. Say goodbye, but make it a real goodbye. Be prepared to burn your plow or burn your boats, or burn your bridges. We have lots of burning illustrations for this no turning back in, in English, don't we? But then there's no looking back. If you decide to follow Jesus properly, if you decide to follow his calling wherever he calls you, there will be some things that you need to leave behind and forget behind and not look back to. Some may be called to use their profession. Some may be called out of their profession, but not to continually think of, of what it is they gave up to be in their profession. I have a friend who was called out of medicine into mission, and his father still reminds him of what salary he could be getting if only he'd stayed in his profession. But he has given that up and put that behind him. One time I was clearing up after a meeting, and I picked up somebody's Bible that they left behind, and there was an inscription in it that said, we give up everything to follow Jesus and then spend the rest of our lives trying to get it back again. We give up everything to follow Jesus and then spend 
the rest of our lives trying to get it back again. And Jesus is saying to this man, yes, you can say goodbye to your family, but make sure when you say yes to following me, you're really following, you're not looking back, you're not being indecisive about this most important commitment of your life. These are the three men, the enthusiast, the excuse maker, and the procrastinator, or, or the ditherer. And I think it's important just to see this in the, the whole context of what Jesus says next, because Jesus calls in order to send the next couple of verses, the previous slide, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Jesus calls us to be followers so that we can also be part of those that he is sending out into his world. And the two are tied together. So what then do we make of these three men? The enthusiast, the excuse maker, and the procrastinator. How did the three men respond? Which ones ended up following Jesus? This is the second part of the quiz, but the answer is we don't know. We're not told, which has given this tantalizingly brief part of the conversation between them and Jesus. And we hear what they said and what Jesus said and perhaps a little of the response. But we don't know whether the enthusiast said, yes, I understand the cost. I am prepared to make that commitment. This is not just a flash in the pan. This is going to be my life. We don't know if the excuse maker said, okay, that was, that was a fog screen to deflect you. I am ready to go follow you now, not to wait. We don't know if the procrastinator says, yes, I will say my goodbyes, but then I will come back. And I think we don't know because that is the intention. Because if we knew, our tendency would be to sit in judgment on these three people and say, you know, good for number two. He turned around and followed Jesus. Shame about numbers one and three because they didn't follow through. But we don't know. And I think the purpose of that is to turn the questions on us. Because the question for us is not how did these men respond, but how will we respond as Jesus asks us to follow him and to keep on following him and to follow him as he calls us into new challenges. To follow him not just when we feel like it, not just when it is convenient, to follow him with no turning back. And as we think about these three men this evening, as we think really much more about ourselves, in what way is God speaking to you and saying, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God? Where is he calling you to do that? Probably for most of you, that's, that's where in Edinburgh or where in your circle of friends or workmates or family. For some of that, it's where in the world or how in the world to contribute to that. But what is God saying to you? And what will you do about that? 
Will you respond enthusiastically and then the enthusiasm will die out and nothing will come of it? Will you find an excuse not to do it? Will you put off that till another day? Or will you do it? Hudson Taylor, who started the Overseas Missionary Fellowship as a missionary to China, wrote in the first edition of the OMF magazine, which at that point was called China's Millions. We believe that the time has come for doing more fully what he, the Lord, has commanded us. And by his grace, we intend to do it. The Lord's command is not do your best, but do it. Do the thing commanded. Whatever he says to you, do it. No excuses. Let's do it. Let's pray.